Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. So today we have an incredible interview lined up for you. We are going to be interviewing producer and director Shannon Cohn. She created the documentary called Endo What? And it's a film that gives accurate, up-to-date knowledge about endometriosis straight from experts. And Shannon herself has a personal journey with this. She struggled for many years with endometriosis, and it took her a really long time to get diagnosed. She's also raising two daughters who are now seven times more likely to have endometriosis because their mother does. There is so much to unpack here, and so we're just going to dive right in. Thank you so much, Shannon, for being here with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. We, Nikki and I both just um, were chatting with you prior to this around watching and listening to your TED talk. And like right before we wanted to get like in the zone of this (laughs) and there are, there's so much in there. I literally have a page of notes that I was taking during it. Um, What, I guess, where do we start? What is the most you know, I think I think where we start is what do you want first, right off the bat, people to know about endometriosis? Um, like, what's one of the most common questions that you get asked around endometriosis? Right. Oh well, the more the most common questions. I mean, what do I want people to know? It's yeah. kind of like the the title of my TED talk. It's endometriosis is the most common devastating disease that most people have never heard of. You know, it affects two hundred million people worldwide yet takes an average of eight doctors 10 years to diagnose, which is insane considering, you know, the state of modern medicine and information that we have, you know, at the tips of our fingers online, Dr. Google and all of that. Um, And, you know, that a lot of the delay to diagnosis, which wreaks so much havoc in people's professional and personal lives is needless. And that's what I feel like is the really like um, unjust part about this disease is that a lot of the suffering around endometriosis is needless. Ooh, that's the unjust part really gets me because it feels we're talking about gender disparity. And so I feel like we need to touch on that like immediately. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's one in 10 women that it impacts, correct? Correct. I mean, one in 10 is the kind of official line. Uh, because, well, I should say that you can't have a confirmed diagnosis of endometriosis right now unless you have surgery and you know, send, the surgeon sends off a sample to pathology and pathology confirms. Of course, there are a lot of really great companies working furiously on a non-invasive diagnostic tool. And I do hope that that comes soon. I really hope so. That would be amazing so that we can get a more accurate number of how many people endometriosis actually affects. And my discussions with experts, they say, yeah, the the official line is one in 10. I think it's more like one in four. That's what they say. Wow. Uh, Because it's like, you can't go down the street without talking to maybe four people. And at least one of them says they have a no, or they've had fertility and, you know, endometriosis is a huge um, 
cause of infertility in women. So it's all just like a a spider web all connected and we still need clarity on its prevalence. So, I mean, really just to back up for people who might not be completely clear on endometriosis, it's essentially tissue that's growing out, uterine tissue growing outside the uterus, correct? Well, that's actually um, a, not true. A, See, incorrect. you need to. Okay. <laughs> tell me, well, no, tell no, me no. what's wrong. I mean, no, um, that's a commonly, you know, misconception because a lot of really great medical websites say that mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is, but that's yeah. actually well, not, not true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, things like the Mayo Clinic and like a lot yeah. of really reputable websites get the definition wrong. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, which is an issue because then it leads to, okay, well, if we can't get the definition wrong and, and scientists and researchers are looking at how it's, what it is and how it's caused, then the treatments that they're proposing that you take are built on a faulty kind of premise about how to, how to treat it, right? So, but anyway, basically endometriosis is when tissue similar to the uterine lining grows outside of the uterus. And it is an important distinction just because it does go to cause. Like historically, like a hundred years ago, there was a researcher who said, oh, well, endometriosis is caused by retrograde menstruation. So when you're menstruating, that menstrual blood goes back through the the fallopian tubes and it kind of plants like flowers in a field, you know, some experts have used that analogy. And that's how you have endometriosis. But the, the problem with that is, yeah, of course, every most people have retrograde menstruation, some, you know, but only 10% of women actually get endometriosis. And so th- the question still remains is why is that, you know, and the answer is, you know, we don't necessarily know, but we think it's probably a, a number of different reasons. Maybe the immune system's involved, genetics are involved. Um, you know, 10% of fetuses at, at autopsy had endometriosis. They're obviously not menstruating. So there's something going on there that we don't know the answers to, but hopefully with increased research funding, we can find the answers. Sorry, that's a very long. No, no, uh, we like it. It's good. What get you said, detailed. but <laughs> it's important. You know, it's really important to get the definition right and just understand that it's similar to the uterine tissue, but not, not exactly the same. It is. And I, I, I love it in your TED talk, especially in the, how you outline kind of your journey from being, and I think I imagine it's similar to many women who oftentimes this is like incredible, unbearable amount of pain um, that you experience when you get your period. And, and so it's, you know, ongoing every month that you're dealing with this, but it going misdiagnosed by even like you know, your parents or your family members or whomever you're talking to and then to doctors, et cetera. But because it's linked to menstruation and you're probably just overreacting around cramps. And I think that that like, just that link at the very beginning and onset of it, of you, you know, overreacting about something and not, you know, and being told that you're listening to your body and it's telling you something, but being told that that's, you know, nothing and, and, you know, take some Advil or something, I'm sure is what you and many have been told on and on and on again. Yeah. I would say probably the majority of women listening have been told at some point in their lives that they're overreacting or they're hysterical or they're trying to get attention or it's really not as bad as they're saying it is. I mean, whether it's endometriosis or anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we're we're all kind of put into that bucket of not being taken seriously in some shape or form. 
Um, and that's a huge part of the delayed a diagnosis with a disease like endometriosis, um, because when you can't see it, it's not on the outside of your body and people don't really understand it. And there's this taboo around even talking about it, for example, when you're a 16 year old girl, um, it just makes it doubly hard to get answers. Um, so, and you know, this goes back for centuries. So that's, you know, like we talk, when I talked about in my TED talk, it's like this whole idea of hysteria and the wandering womb, it kind of is the foundation upon which all of these uh, principles are built of not believing women. And just the disparity when women show up at the ER in pain. And I mean, mm. you, you yourself have experienced this. And to be honest, I have as well, not from endo, but from other pain falling down the stairs pregnant. But anyways, that's a whole other thing. Um, but just this feeling of like, you know, you're being hysterical. Like it's just, yeah. you know, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm so true. sorry. I mean, I, I, and now I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I mean, it, someone can easily find it. That there was a study uh, in the Yale School of Public Health that basically that women show up to an ER and they're given like, and, and like 20 minutes longer to be seen, first of all, and taken seriously for their pain. And they're more often given things like um, anxiety medication instead of painkillers, instead of men who, who show up with exact same symptoms like abdominal pain. I wrote that down because, yeah, you said 65-minute wait versus a 49-minute wait of women to men. Yes, exactly. Like, Thank you. That That's that's insane. insane. <laughs> and, you know, and I know so many, and this is true for myself too, so many very capable, educated, articulate women who have remarked upon that they are taken more seriously in an ER if they take their partner with them. Um, and if their partner even speaks up, um, and says, and like, uh, explains the symptoms or just voices support for the woman, they are taken more seriously. So we're talking about, I, I know someone who's a, who's an RN and a very capable woman, but she's like, I take my, my husband, who's a computer wow. programmer with me to, wow. to the ER. So I have him saying, yes, this is true. This is her experience yeah. because I've noticed that I'm taken more seriously. It's, 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 I don't, this is a real big problem. And I feel like I've been, I mean, I had a heart issue and I was, was born with SVT and I had a heart cardiac ablation for it. And I remember one time going to the ER in SVT and I said, I'm very calm. It's not, but I'm like, I'm in SVT. I need adenosine very calmly. And they're just like, I was actually, <laughs> I was in Miami at a bachelorette party and they're like, you've been doing drugs you've been doing cocaine. And I'm like, I am very lucid. I'm talking to you exactly as I'm talking to you right now. I have not been doing any narcotics. I have SVT. It's diagnosed. But it was just this, you know, like they were like, well, you don't really need an ECG. I'm like, I I do actually need an ECG. But it's one of those things where like, again, like this chick doesn't know what she's talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm so, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I hope you were able to get, I was fine. Her. Yes, I was fine. <laughs> but um, still, oh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it does, it happens often, especially with a, a disease like endometriosis. Yeah. Um, so Marilyn Monroe, did she have endometriosis? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I think some people have seen some letters allegedly that saying, I mean, she definitely seemed like she had symptoms of it with incredibly yeah. painful periods. I believe she had fertility issues. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert for sure. And her, but I mean, that's the rumor that she has. 
mm-hmm. or she did have endometriosis and it would certainly explain a lot of things yeah. about the tragedy of her life in a lot of ways, which is very sad. So, and yeah, it's, I mean, Nikki sent that a little clip of that to me and uh, it's unbelievable. And what, you know, through your journey and then creating the film that you created, like what brought you to the point to decide to do that? Um, and how has that been received and what's the impact that you've seen from it following? Yeah, that's, you know, my journey to make endo. what I never thought I would make uh, a film on endometriosis. It never even entered my, my mind. Uh, I was a lawyer before and um, after I worked on the Enron investigation and a lot of other types of to work, usually focusing on international law and then decided to go to film school and I went to film school and then um, made documentaries and then built social action campaigns around documentaries. So really interest films that were interested in changing policy you're changing the social consciousness of around an issue and then just after my second daughter was born I read born I read an article um, talking about the seven times increased risk between mother and daughter and sisters and was kind of horrified by that because um, my journey with endometriosis had been 20 years of symptoms since I was you know a teenager just started my period and um, all of the symptoms that I went through and the, the struggle getting diagnosed and multiple surgeries and medications. And it, it just, it was, it horrified me that my two very young daughters would have to walk that same path because nothing had really changed. There was still a very long delay to diagnosis and there were no real answers on cause or cure or anything like that. And so I just kind of had this light bulb moment that, wait a second, I'm building, um, you know, social social justice movements, social action movements around issues. Why can't I do it around women's health and endometriosis? Because if there were ever an issue, a medical issue that needed uh, something to connect the patient lived experience and the patient knowledge or lack of knowledge about a disease, and even the physician and provider knowledge about the disease, it, it would be endometriosis and it would be a film. So I just started interviewing experts um, that, you know, that knew about endometriosis. And I then that started this crazy roller coaster journey of you know, delving into the minefield that is endometriosis. And instead of things becoming simpler and more clarified, things got more complex. Um, and but my goal, you know, with Endo What was to create this accurate base of knowledge, the idea that someone can watch it. And, you know, an hour later, you know, know what she needed to then move forward for individualized care. Um, And it doesn't answer everything. And, um, you know, it's it's tricky with it with, you know, a a film like this, because it can't be everything to everyone. But it can get you started and it can be, you know, it's everything I wish I had known, for example, at 20, you know, instead of waiting until I was in my 30s kind of going going into this. But um, the response has been great, you know, over overwhelmingly and overall great from the patient community, um, from the healthcare community to a large extent. Um, of course, most, I mean, you know, this is a gross generalization, but true in my experience that a lot of doctors think that they don't need a film to tell them, you know, what they're doing right or wrong. And that's fine. Um, and a valid point, you know, but um, at the same time, I think we all have things to learn about this disease and we have to remain open. And if patients are still going an average of 10 years before they're diagnosed, then something's wrong. Absolutely. 
And the number of surgeries, you yourself had three surgeries, but you say some people are like upwards of seven to 10 surgeries. Yes, absolutely. So obviously what's happening there? Is it because surgery isn't the right treatment or the right surgery isn't being done or the surgeons themselves aren't skilled in providing surgery? I mean, I think it can be all of those things. So, um, yeah. And you mentioned there's two types of surgery. There's an ablation surgery where they're burning the tissue, but that's only really the tip of the iceberg. And there's an excision surgery where they're actually cutting it out. But the majority of doctors don't actually cut it out. They burn like the tip of the iceberg. Correct. I mean, the vast majority of OBGYNs in the in the world, um, you know, they're generalists as far as like obstetrics and gynecology. They need to know how to deliver babies. Of course they do. They need to know how to, they've learned how to, you know, give hysterectomies. They learn a lot of different things. And the fact is that learning how to do excision surgery takes a lot of training. It's very complex. Some say it's the most complex surgery you can have in the body. It's like, like, um, surgery for cancer, for example, because you're on multiple organs. Um, and so of course, maybe a lot of OBGYNs just don't have the training, um, and haven't had the opportunity to learn that type of surgery. So the issue is if you still have disease left behind, that's been burned on top, you know, just what you can see, a doctor can see, how can you actually get better? Because you still have disease left behind. Only when you can get all, you know, the disease out that are the vast majority of the disease out can your body then that inflammatory process that endometriosis lesions cause only can that inflammation go down and your body can start to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's important to state that, you know, endometriosis or excision surgery isn't like a magic bullet, you know, Um, when you have a disease bearing down on your body for a decade or longer, a lot of different things happen, you know, and when you take that offender out, take the disease out, that's the first step, but it really needs a multidisciplinary approach to down, down, you know, regulating your central nervous system, which has been keyed up in pain for years and years and years to probably need public for uh, physical therapy to get things working the way they should be. Um, I, I found a lot of success in an anti-inflammatory diet and, and Eastern medicine, but that ne- that's not necessarily the case for everyone. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's a disease that someone has to kind of step in and say, okay, I'm the manager of my healthcare. I'm the manager of my body. And all of the healthcare providers around me were a team. Um, and only then can we get to answers. We can't, you can't turn your body and turn your health over to one provider in this disease. Um, I, I haven't actually never seen it work. Um, if someone wants to prove me wrong, I've, I'm always open, but I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it work with anyone I've, I've met, and I've met thousands of people with endometriosis. Yeah. Hysterectomies. Let's go there. <sighs> wow. Hysterectomies. You know, I haven't had a hysterectomy, so I don't feel completely qualified to talk about it. Uh, I just know that, um, again, it's something that all... OBGYNs are taught how to do and um, probably do well. And so I think a lot of times maybe there's a rush to get to that if someone keeps coming back in pain Um, and maybe there shouldn't be uh, because endometriosis itself by definition is when there's disease outside of the uterus. So actually giving hysterectomy and taking 
um, the uterus out isn't going to solve the problem when you have a disease that's outside of the uterus. Um, and I think it's doubly tragic when someone wants to have children and they're given a hysterectomy as a treatment for a disease. Um, and, you know, I know several people that that's happened to, and it's been absolutely devastating uh, to them and their lives, personal and professional, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, it reverberates out. I will say that hysterectomy for a related condition called adenomyosis, which is when tissue similar to the uterine lining grows within the smooth muscle wall of the uterus. Um, you know, there are different treatments for that, but it's my understanding that the only definitive cure for that, for adenomyosis, is a hysterectomy. Um, but still, it's, it should only be given as an option when a woman mm-hmm. is absolutely sure that she doesn't want to have children or her childbearing is over. And it begs the question of informed consent, right? Right. I mean, you know, that's with all of healthcare and especially with endometriosis, girls and their parents or women who go into a doctor's office really need to understand the treatments being offered to them. And then not only the short-term, but long-term side effects of any of those treatments and whether it be medication, whether it be surgery, you know, I think there's a real problem with a lot of, for example, medications with endometriosis. Um, And this has certainly been my personal experience where I've been told by an OBGYN, oh, take this drug. Everybody takes this drug. This will, you know, just knock out your periods for a little while. Uh, But don't worry, you know, um, you you should, you should feel better. If not, we'll try this one. (laughs) So we're kind of put on, and I'm just sitting here going, you know, at the time, like what in the world, like, I, I don't, what is this hormone? What, what hormone are you trying to, what is, what are the side effects, you know, and kind of dismiss when I ask those questions. And that's why I think there's a real problem with informed consent with endometriosis. And, you know, there's a place for medications. There's a place for surgery so far in this disease, but there really needs to be a, a huge push toward um, informing patients what they're signing up for when they take a litany of painkillers or hormones, um, and then also the surgery and understanding the risk of surgery. And especially when you're getting into things like multiple surgeries, um, what that, what effect that has on your body. When you went into your first surgery, was your expectation coming out of it that you would be cured? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't we all like it's kind of like modern medicine, like give me a pill for something, yeah. have a surgery, take something out, like you're going to be better. And when that doesn't happen, you're kind of like, wait a second, you know, like, wait, I thought this was supposed to work. And then the issue is you kind of go back to your doctor or surgeon and say, hey, wait, you know, but I don't actually feel any better. And then a lot of times, and this was my experience was, oh, well, then it must be something else. <laughs> I can't help you, you know, like, because it certainly wasn't me or my skill or my judgment in you know, treating you the way that I did. Um, so a lot of women are kind of um, kept in like a carousel, like the doctor, okay, well, I'll try again. You know, if you're like doing ablation surgery, for example, they'll get back in and burn some more. Um, and then you get into problems like adhesions, which are when like, like it's kind of like spider webs that start like scar tissue that sticks between your organs and your anatomy um, and your like pelvis. So that create, you know, creates a whole host of problems as well. 
Um, it, it's, it's complicated, <laughs> but you know, but the, the important thing is understanding that these are issues and it's complicated and just being aware of them. First of all, that's, that's mm-hmm. the importance of, you know, having discussions like this. And this might be a silly question and I wish I had done more research before asking you this, but is yeah. there something that would outside of genetics, is there any, you know, risk factor or something that would predispose someone to developing endometriosis? Well, there's a lot of research um, with environmental toxins and um, things like PCP, you know, things like, but how do you pronounce it? Ah, dioxins and phthalates, phthalates. What are that? What's that oh, word? Yeah. It's like a P-T-H-L-A, phthalates, yeah. things like that, um, that do cause, you know, epigenetic changes in, in your body. There's a lot of, of course, controversy on whether or not that causes endometriosis. But my response to that is, I mean, I'm going to err on the side of not putting a lot of chem- chemicals in my body, <laughs> whether it causes or does not cause endometriosis or cancer, which it has been linked to and a lot of other conditions. Like, how about I just don't do that, you know, and I, I try to um, eat organic when I can. I don't do it all the time because it can be cr- incredibly expensive. So I focus on the things that have the highest toxic load. And then into what we go into is a great nonprofit uh, website called Environmental Working Group, and they are nonpartisan nonprofit, and they just can tell you uh, the toxic profile of any beauty products um, that you may be putting on your body. And I found that a really great resource. So I try to stay on the lower end of that spectrum and anything that I'm putting on my body or my children that um, it's a lower toxic load. And they also have kind of like the, the dirty dozen. So it's like these 12 fruits and vegetables are have the highest toxic content. So it's a lot of things like apples and, and strawberries, things that you eat the peel of so that they are like absorbing all of those pesticides, for example, when they're out in the field. So the idea is if you can afford to maybe do organic for those dozen and then some of the others you can do conventional and it just really does decrease your toxic load in your body. And, you know, if you're, if your body's not too busy, like fighting toxins and pesticides and things like that, then it can do other things and keep you healthy. Mm-hmm. That's great. Great advice and tips. And yeah, in general, I guess it's good, whether it's endometriosis or like you said, cancer or whatever to decrease that toxic load. We, we talk a lot. Um, and Nikki is like, major advocate for advocating for yourself. Um, and that's like one of, I think your main missions, Nikki. Mm-hmm. Is true. Around birth. birth yeah. yeah. Birth, yes. but advocating for yourself. And, but similarly, just hearing you, you speak, um, you know, in your Ted talk and I'd love to hear you speak here a little bit about it is, you know, your experience with advocating for yourself as it links to something like this, which is, you know, so commonly undiagnosed uh, or misdiagnosed or not diagnosed, right? Um, And your experience advocating for yourself and when along your journey did you, you know, have that strength and courage to do that? And how would you guide others that currently are experiencing the pain and symptoms that may be linked to uh, endometriosis, but are getting, you know, pushed aside, I guess, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what they're saying and, and what they're being told. Yeah, I would say this is for endometriosis and basically anything. And Nikki, you probably, you can tell me if you agree, but yeah. it's kind of like, if you feel disempowered, 
the first step is try to learn everything you can about what, what the issue is. I mean, educate yourself. I mean, you, you're, of course, you're going to feel disempowered if you feel like you don't know what's happening and you feel it all feels out of your control and you feel diminished in that way. And that is exactly what I was trying to get to with endo what is kind of like a reverse engineering thing. Like, okay, how do we empower patients to take control of their health? First of all, they need to understand what this disease is, all the different factors. They need to become educated and become educated advocates. Like advocacy starts with becoming educated on whatever you're advocating. So um, I would say you have to start there, learn everything you can about whatever it may be with endometriosis, for example, and understand the sources that you are learning, you know, from, for example, if a source is, you know, a website that's paid for by pharma, you're probably going to get biased information toward pharma. I mean, that's just how it is. If it's a surgeon's website, you may get information biased toward surgery. Um, so just understanding those kind of implied biases or explicit biases in information systems, but starting with accurate information to get educated, and then you will naturally become empowered and learn. And through that process, in my experience, find your voice to start advocating for yourself. And I'm sure with endometriosis, for example, there are a ton of really great support groups online that most, the majority of people that are seeking and have found, you know, effective treatments and care for endometriosis, they will tell you that it's because they found the right group online, not because they found the right doctor. Yeah. I love that. Knowledge is power. I feel like I say that every day, <laughs> yeah, every single true. day. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, uh, I feel like very emotional. I don't know if that, like, it's just, it's so, yeah. And it, I think it's, I, and Nikki, you're the same. Like we're both surrounded by so many women, like at Waxon, it, the, our clients are, are, we have 150 women that work for Waxon. And I know how common this is just amongst, you know, members of our team. And so it's just so, it's unbelievable that in this day and age in 2022, you know, we are still telling stories about how we need to bring our partner to the hospital with us because um, then we'll be really heard about the pain that we're experiencing. And that's something that this that impacts so many people, so many women um, is still such an issue today. Um, what progress have you since your kind of, you know, um, before you thought about even doing the film and, and we're just uh, someone, not just, but someone experiencing this for, for yourself. And then now today, what progress have you seen in healthcare and with endometriosis from when you were experiencing it to today? Has there been, you know, some progress that you've noticed that has been empowering for you in, in your mission? Of course. I mean, yes. I mean, first of all, I think, um, girls are speaking a, a lot more about their bodies and periods and their symptoms. My, I have, you know, a daughter who's a preteen and she just talks about her period. Like she talks about her leg hurting. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. And I wonder if I'm like, I, I've asked her before. I'm like, are you talking about this so openly because I'm your mom and we talk about periods all the time. And she's like, no, we just all kind of talk about this. Like, you know, there are the period apps that I think are really fantastic. I mean, and they're, but also because of, you know, everything online and that's seen as something cool when you're speaking out. 
So I think there's a lot of really exciting things happening. Um, and like these, you know, these great like generations in their teens now that really are breaking a lot of the taboos around below the belt women's issues. So I'm super excited about that. Um, and then yes, within endometriosis, I think there's a lot more awareness of endometriosis in general. Um, it's gotten a lot of really great press in the last you know, decade. For example, The Guardian did a really great uh, award-winning um, series on endometriosis a few years ago. Um, and, you know, there have been set several national action plans in Australia leading the way. For example, France just announced one. I think um, Canada, of course, is working on something. The U.S. is very complicated as a lot of things. But I, we are working toward, you know, doing that as well. And we're working on Capitol Hill in a bipartisan way. Um, I've been working with senators in Washington, D.C. since 2017 to generate research funding from the Department of Defense so that we can find, you know, answers to this disease and other menstrual health disorders. Thank Progress you. Progress is happening. Yes. yes. Thank so you. It's happening. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's a long process, but I think that we're getting there. Yeah. So you're not satisfied with one documentary. You're doing a second film very soon, correct? Correct. We are releasing a second documentary on endometriosis in May of this year. We're doing some in-person events, for example, um, a lot of the distribution is still kind of in development. So, but I, I, so I can't get into details, but I can just say that we are releasing it. It actually approaches endometriosis as a social justice issue. And I already, I always knew that I wanted to make this film. Uh, when I first started film, uh, filming different experts and stuff for Endo What, I realized quite quickly that to do endometriosis justice, I needed two films because the first is like, I, we just needed an accurate base of information. We needed an educational film to give women that knowledge and that power to then go and make, you know, healthcare choices. So that's why I made Into What First and it's straightforward educational film. But Below the Belt, which is, I don't know if I've said that's the name of the second film. Love! Is, really more a traditional documentary and the fact that we follow four women over a number of years and follow their journeys and they're from all different socioeconomic statuses, different races, different ages, different situations um, as far as like where they are all in their lives. One is a, a Korean American artist in Brooklyn who just got married and wants to have a family um, and kind of follows her journey with infertility because of endometriosis. One is an RN in, in Los Angeles and, and a registered nurse and kind of following her you know, journey being minimized by colleagues for her mm -hmm. symptoms. And um, we actually, there's a Canadian and one of the four who is 28 when we first start following her, newly married, but is bedridden and have lost this business that she started um, years before. So you know, we, we follow all of these women and learn by extension, hopefully the audience starts caring about their stories and caring about them and by extension cares about these issues that we're all confronting. And Below the Belt really goes into these ideas of the menstrual taboo and, you know, stigma, things like gender bias and medicine, racial bias and medicine, um, and uninformed doctors. What do you do when you have uninformed doctors who are well-meaning but still uninformed and maybe don't have the, the skills to help you? 
Um, and then finally, the impact of commercial interests in our healthcare system. And how does that how does that impact you finding effective treatment? Can't wait. This is going to be good. <laughs> so I went to your first screening in Toronto in 2016, and I am so excited because you mentioned prior to us recording that you are planning some screening dates here in Toronto. So that's amazing. Yes. We may have to just, we may have to do a follow-up once the movie launches. Yeah, let's do it. We could do something really fun, like on the scene, you know? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yes. Oh gosh. I'd love to meet you in person if you would be at the screening for sure. Yes. Yeah, we got to get it into TIFF. To. Can we get it yeah, into TIFF? Yeah that, yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. You oh, know, yeah. I haven't really, because of COVID and everything, we didn't really pursue a lot of festivals just because things have been upended. But um, like I said, we're planning something at the end of May and in, in New York. And then we're doing something in London in June and then Sydney later, in, you know, probably August. So hopefully in Toronto around September. that time. Oh, yeah. Film that TIFF's like September. So perfect. Yeah, right. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm so excited. And I love the name. I mean, also Thank being a hair removal business below the belt, something we <laughs> right. do regularly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I like that. That's good. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, oh, I'm where's to, I know like Nikki, I speak for both of us. Like we're so grateful for you coming on and just kind of final words. What's, what do you want to leave we have so many women that listen to this. What do you want to leave women with um, that are listening to this today? Oh, wow. Um, you know, there's so many things. To, yeah. It's like, it's hard to pick just one, but I mean, I think the first thing is like, if you know something is wrong with your body, um, don't take no for an answer. Don't take being dismissed, you know, as fact. Um, keep searching. You will find someone who can help you. You will find someone who will listen to you. And if all else fails, go online and you will find a community of others like you who can help guide you in the right direction. That's perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to meet you and we appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us today. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.